Well, last week we read the famous Exodus story of God parting the Red Sea and allowing his chosen people Israel to cross over safely. Now, the pursuing Egyptians, on the other hand, were thrown into confusion, cast into the water, and ultimately drowned. But the Israelites are finally fully delivered from slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh is in the rearview mirror, and this time it really is for good. God's presence has been made visible to the Israelites. His power and glory have been repeatedly displayed to them. So now these former slaves can head to the promised land they've heard about for generations and move on with their lives. But as we continue today, while things have been looking up for the Israelites, the truth is that they aren't out of the woods yet. In fact, they are just literally heading into the woods, going into the wilderness. And there are still over 600,000 people to care for. That is a lot of mouths to feed for Moses and Aaron. Now, it's been clearly established that God can deliver his people. There's no longer any doubt about that. But now the question becomes this. Will God be able to lead all these people safely to the promised land? Can he care for them? Can he meet their needs? But today we start to see that the biggest challenge facing the Israelites in the wilderness doesn't come from the outside. It's not Pharaoh. It's not hunger. It's not thirst. It's not whatever other enemy might lurk around the corner. The biggest challenge, the biggest issue for the Israelites comes from within themselves. So go ahead and open up to Exodus 15, verse 22. Feel free to use the Bibles we have here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. We're entering a time of year where life gets hectic and busy, and there are countless tasks and distractions and responsibilities and things to cross off the to-do list. But Father, thank you for this hour and 15 minutes to slow down, to intentionally take some time and be with our brothers and sisters in Christ, intentionally take time to sing and pray and take communion and read your word. We need this every single week. We need this more than just on Sunday morning. We really need it every single day. And so, Father, I ask that you be with us this morning as we do those things. I pray that these commandments that you give us to not cease meeting together, to remember what it is that you've done for us, to pray to you, to worship you. These commandments are for our good because we need them. And, Father, I pray that you would give us the benefits that we receive from them today. Again, Lord, I pray that we would honor you and worship you and glorify you with what we say and do in this room this morning, but that I would also honor and glorify you and worship you with everything we do, whether we're here or wherever else we go. Again, we love you, we worship you, we thank you for Christ, and we ask this all in his name. Amen. Let's begin reading in Exodus 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, 
and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And Moses threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So just a few days after those dramatic events by the sea, the Israelites have their first post-deliverance hiccup. They're wandering in the wilderness, getting a little bit thirsty, and quickly realize that they have nothing to drink. No drinkable water can be found. So they complain to Moses. Moses speaks with God. God gives Moses instructions. God takes care of them through Moses. Pretty simple. The bitter water is cleansed. The Israelites drink. Their mouths are no longer dry and they can move forward. It seems like just a minor blip on the radar, doesn't it? I mean, after all, the Israelites have seen God part the sea. They've seen spectacular examples of his power and his care for them. And surely they wouldn't doubt God after all of that. After everything they've seen God do, they must have complete confidence that he will come through for them and take care of them. The lack of water, just a blip on the radar, right? I mean, they did just get done singing about God's power and God's presence Earlier in chapter 15, they said that he is their strength and their song and has become their salvation. They've seen his mighty hand at work. They know that there is no other God besides him and that he is awesome in his wonders and deeds. The Israelites love God. They trust him. They honor him. And true, they might have been a little bit irritable. A little bit worried, a little bit nervous when they went a few days without water. But who wouldn't be? But surely the Israelites' faith in God has never really wavered, right? Not after everything they've seen. We'll pick up in verse 25. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying... If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Now, why are those words there? Well, I think those words are telling. After this small bump in the road on their way to the promised land, Just a few days without water. God makes the Israelites a clear rule. He lays out their expectations of their obedience. And he even gives them a warning of judgment for disobedience. For some reason, in these verses, after that little blip of a lack of water, for some reason, God sees fit to test the Israelites. Now, why do you think the Israelites need to be tested? I mean, they just got done singing about how much they love God. Doesn't he know that they love them? Why the test? Well, chapter 16, starting in verse 1. 
They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So by now we're about a month removed from the Passover. And the Israelites complain once again. And this time they're not thirsty. This time they're hungry. And they're even more irritable than they were before. The Israelites are hangry. They're so unsatisfied that they've even managed to convince themselves that slavery might not have been so bad. They look back on their time in Egypt with a sort of twisted nostalgia. They imagine that life in Egypt was just one big barbecue, which it wasn't. We all know it wasn't. But their suffering has caused them to say and think and believe some crazy things. And then the Israelites level a careless, harsh, and even absurd accusation against Moses and Aaron. They've concluded that Moses' leadership and God's deliverance, it was all one big conspiracy to bring them into the wilderness and starve them. But once again, just like he did when they complained about their thirst, God takes care of the Israelites. We see it in verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them. There's that phrase again. That I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So this time, God doesn't just give the Israelites a temporary solution to their hunger. He commits to provide food for them continually. They'll get meat in the evening in the form of quail. They'll get bread in the morning in the form of manna. And the Israelites will not be hungry. Their bellies will be full. But more importantly, they will have yet another proof. They will have even more evidence of God's character, God's power, God's glory, and his commitment to their good. His commitment to their well-being. But look again at verse 4. The Lord tested them. Think back to Exodus 15, verse 25. The Lord tested them. God is graciously providing food for the Israelites because he loves them. But he is also testing the Israelites. 
The Israelites' obedience is what's being tested here. That's part of why in chapter 16, God lays out such clear ground rules for how the Israelites will collect all that food. Sunday through Thursday, each person is to gather what he needs for one day, that day, and nothing more. On Friday, each person would gather what they need for two days and nothing more. And that means on Saturday, the Sabbath in the Old Testament, no one would need to go out and gather food. Instead, they can sit and they can rest. So with the instructions, the Israelites' obedience is being tested. Simply put, we're going to see whether or not they will follow what God says. But, you know, the truth is that this is more than just a test of obedience. This is also a test of faith. God's command that the Israelites not save any leftovers beyond their immediate need is ultimately a test of whether or not the Israelites believe God will come through for them each day. Do they really believe that when they wake up tomorrow, God will provide them bread? Do they really believe that when the sun sets, God will provide them meat? This isn't just a test of whether or not the Israelites will do what God tells them to do. This is a test of faith. Do they believe that God will keep his word? Do they believe that he is able to keep his word? Or maybe more specifically, do the Israelites trust God to take care of them? Now, sadly, but perhaps predictably, after what we've read so far, the answer is no. The Israelites fail the test. Sunday through Thursday, they tried to gather too much and save it against God's commands. Verse 19, And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. They fail Sunday through Thursday. And then on Saturday, the Israelites go out to gather more rather than resting. We see in verses 27 through 29, On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place and let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So they failed Sunday through Thursday. And they fail on Friday and Saturday as well. And these tests expose the Israelites for who they really are. These tests show that the Israelites are disobedient and unfaithful. It proves that their worship of God by the Red Sea was not the rule. It was the exception. The Israelites' grumbling and complaining wasn't just a minor hiccup brought about by a little bit of thirst. It wasn't just a momentary blip on the radar. It wasn't just a small bump in the road. This grumbling, this complaining, this disobedience, this lack of faith, 
It's who the Israelites are, even after all they've witnessed. Remember what we read in Exodus 15, 25 and 26, when God commanded the Israelites to diligently listen to his voice, to do what is right in his eyes, to give ear to his commandments, to keep all of his statutes. Well, how's that going so far for the Israelites? Not very well. We're not that far away from the plagues in Egypt. We're only a month removed from God's incredible, undeniably miraculous deliverance at the sea. And on top of that, every day and every night, the Israelites have God's symbolic presence right before their very eyes in the form of cloud and fire. And yet, in spite of all these things, all these proofs, all the evidence, the Israelites disobey God. They are unfaithful to God. They grumble and complain against Moses, and they grumble and complain against God. If you need any more proof about just how dug in the Israelites are in their opposition to God, look ahead to chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Because yet again, after they should have learned their lesson from chapter 15, the Israelites get a little bit of thirsty, they complain against God, and they even get to the point of wanting to stone Moses. The point is that the Israelites are repeatedly, consistently, unbelieving, disobedient, and downright rebellious in their responses to God. You know, come to think of it, the Israelites are really not that different from another person we already read about in Exodus. Ironically, sadly, the Israelites are not that different from the hard-hearted Pharaoh. Now, you might ask, how did the Israelites get this way? What went so wrong? Were they hardened after generations of suffering in Egypt? Were they hardened by centuries of not hearing from God? Were they hardened by the understandable stresses of wandering in the wilderness and having to trust God just to survive each day? Well, those factors might make things difficult. But really, the root of the Israelites' problem, their hard-heartedness, their disobedience, their lack of faith, it goes much, much deeper. Their problem goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Because the truth is that the Israelites are just following in the footsteps of Adam and Eve before them. God clearly laid out his expectations for Adam and Eve, and yet they didn't obey. God gave Adam and Eve all they needed in the Garden of Eden. Every tree that they wanted to eat from except for one. And yet they didn't trust him. They bought the serpent's lie that they would be better off setting their own rules rather than obeying the rules that God established for their good and their well-being. Adam and Eve allowed the serpents grumbling and complaining against God to shake their faith and trust in him. And Adam and Eve became grumblers and complainers as well. They ate from the tree. They unleashed sin into the world. 
and all who came after them have followed in their footsteps. That includes Moses and the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. That includes Pharaoh back in Egypt. It includes you and me in this room. Every single one of us has failed the test of obedience and faith in God. So today's passage does tell us something about God, and we'll talk about that more in a few moments. But first, today's passage tells us an awful lot about ourselves. It tells us that left to ourselves, quite frankly, we are no better than those rebellious Israelites wandering in the wilderness. We, too, are stubborn, hard-hearted, and rebellious. We, too, follow in the footsteps of Adam and Eve, which means that we, too, are sinners. And the truth is that when we come to face-to-face with that reality, hunger and thirst are the least of our concerns. Now, don't get me wrong. Food and water are essential in this life. We have to have it to survive. But this life isn't all there is. In the eternal scheme of things, this life is just a drop in the bucket. And for our eternal survival, our eternal well-being and flourishing, we need a lot more than food and water. For our eternal well-being, we need sin to be dealt with. The root of the Israelites' disobedience and unbelief, and the root of our disobedience and unbelief. In John 6, 1 through 14, Jesus miraculously feeds a massive crowd by the sea. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? But then a few verses later, when that same crowd hunts Jesus down the next day, Jesus says this. John chapter 6, verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to Jesus, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Think about that request in verse 30. They just saw Jesus feed a massive crowd miraculously, and yet they have the audacity and the nerve to say to Jesus, Hey, prove that you're so powerful. What sign do you do? Did you forget what you just saw yesterday? Verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, 
And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. The crowd in John 6 was drawn to Jesus mainly because he gave them bread. He fed them. That's what they wanted. But Jesus makes it clear that what he's really been sent to offer, offer to them, offer to you, offer to me, is far better than a meal. He challenges the crowd to focus on the eternal rather than the temporal. He reminds them that the food that satisfies them in this life is far less important than the food that will satisfy their need for eternal life. He says that he himself is the true bread from heaven that doesn't just fill bellies, but saves all who believe in him. You know, those Israelites who drank the water at the end of Exodus 15 and ate the food in Exodus 16 eventually died. But Jesus promises that those who believe in him will live forever and will never hunger and never thirst again. When many people in the crowd heard what Jesus said, those people he just fed by the sea, they grumbled and complained. Again, sound familiar. The truth is that these crowds in the New Testament are no better than the Israelites in the wilderness. From the Garden of Eden to the shores of the Red Sea to the New Testament and to this very day, sin lives on. Sin lives on in you, and it lives on in me. And it is only through Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came down from heaven and offered his body and blood on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sin. It's only through him that the root of our disobedience and lack of faith are dealt with. It is only through Jesus that our need for forgiveness, redemption, and reconciliation with God is satisfied. And those things are far more important than hunger and thirst. In 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul uses the example of the grumbling Israelites in the wilderness to warn believers like us not to commit the same error that they did, that disobedience, that lack of faith. In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Paul says, These things happened to them, the Israelites, as an example. But they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Later, Paul cautions us against naively or arrogantly assuming that we could never fall into similar sin. And I think if we're being honest, we probably all have. We probably all do. We talk and sing and pray about how much God has done for us in the past, and yet we grumble and complain and disobey and lack faith in the moment. Paul warns us against that. He tells us not to forget what God has done for us in the past to the point of grumbling or complaining or disobeying or lacking faith now. 
May we learn from the Israelites' example and not grumble, not complain, not disobey, not lack faith to take care of us when he has already done so much for us. May we be constantly reminded of how he has cared for us in this life and how he has cared for us in eternity. And may we grow in faith and grow in trust and grow in obedience. The author of Hebrews does something similar. He uses the Israelites as an example, and he gives his audience a similar warning. Chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We'll see next week that almost all of those doubting Israelites in Exodus 15 through 17 never did reach the promised land. That generation fell in the wilderness, except for a very small few. But those who believe in Christ have confidence that we will reach our eternal promised land. As we read in Hebrews 4.11, may we strive to enter that rest. May we strive to be people of faith and obedience. May we strive to be people of holiness. So in the immediate context of Exodus 15-17, through we learn some pretty simple lessons about God. We learn that he meets the material needs of his people, even though they repeatedly fail the test of faith and obedience. It's a wonderful example that while God's grace is most clearly seen in the New Testament, it's not absent from the Old Testament. God graciously cared for the Israelites, even when they were stubborn and rebellious. He quenched their thirst and satisfied their hunger. That's good for believers like us to remember. Because we too have a knack for being rebellious and stubborn. Likewise, we Christians trust God to graciously meet our needs in this life. In Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us to pray that God would give us each day our daily bread. In the same chapter, he challenges us not to be anxious, but instead to trust that God knows what we need and he knows when we need it. So do we believe that God can provide food for the hungry and water for the thirsty? Do we believe that God has the power to meet our material needs in this life? Absolutely we do. But most of all, we obey and trust and love and worship God in this life because we know that he's provided what we need for eternal life. His son, Jesus Christ. Again, in and of ourselves, We have repeatedly failed the test of faith, the test of obedience. But God has graciously provided Jesus Christ. And we believe that he passed the test perfectly. He gave himself up for us on the cross. And that's why we're confident that one day we will make it to our eternal promised land, where there will be no hunger and there will be no thirst. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we have together. 
Thank you for the promises in your word. In the chapters that we read today, we see your power put on display, miraculously providing water and food for the Israelites. We see your grace on display because even though they repeatedly fail the test, even though they repeatedly grumble and complain against you, you continue to provide for them. Even though their faith and their obedience and their worship and their love may be shaky at best, your love for them, your grace for them, your kindness to them is stable and secure. And Father, that's incredibly comforting for people like us who, even after placing faith in Christ, we too can be guilty of wavering. We can be unsteady. We can sometimes be doubtful. We can sometimes be disobedient. But we rejoice in the fact that you are continually gracious. We rejoice in the fact that you have the power not only to provide for us in this life, but you've already provided everything we need for eternal life. And so, Father, we love you. You are our strength and our song. We thank you for your mighty hand in saving us. We thank you that you are our salvation, that you are our healer. And that you've addressed something far worse than just a grumbling stomach or a dry mouth. But through Jesus Christ, you have addressed the problem of our sin, the problem of our lack of faith, the problem of our disobedience. And Father, we love you for that. And we thank you for Christ. We ask this all in his name and we glorify you. Amen.